Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Be'etze covers Genesis 28, verse 10, through chapter 32, verse 2. And we also picked up passage there in Hosea 12, through the beginning part of 14, and John chapter 1, 19 through 51, and also 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. So those are the passages that we're going to be taking a look at, and, and partly here today. So... First off, kind of a roadmap of the passages that we're going to be taking a look at here today. Some highlights. So Genesis 28 verses 10 through 22 is known Jacob's ladder, the ladder between heaven and earth. And that is an extremely important aspect of, of this particular account and actually a lot of the account that you see in the Torah. And we'll see this is not just an incidental vision that's being noted here because as we saw in that reading that we had in john chapter one this is a really pivotal window into what was actually happening there in the book of genesis this reach between heaven and earth so in genesis 29 verses 1 through 14 yaakov is meeting rachel genesis 29 15 through 30 Laban dupes Yaakov 10 times, working 14 years for uh, Rachel and uh, getting Leah as a bonus, and then also six more for the livestock in the process. So Genesis 29, 31 through th chapter 30, verse 24, you've got Leah and Rachel battling over the babies and who is going to have the kids and how many kids they're going to have and whether they can even have kids at all. Then Genesis 30, verse, 20, uh, verse 25 through 31, verse 16, is you've got this Yaakov is battling with Laban over the livestock. And so you get this rope-a-dope that happens over the incidents and the kinds of sheep and livestock that happen in the process. And in finishing up here in Genesis 31, verse 17 through 32, 2, is you have Yaakov is now fleeing, Laban overtakes him, and then they make a covenant. Basically, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side of this particular pillar that's being put forward. So some really important aspects that we'll be taking a look at in addition to the what's known as Jacob's Ladder is we have this um, passage there of the lost sheep of Israel. And we covered this in one of our previous studies where we're looking and you see that this particular passage of the battling over who is going to get the livestock. And then we see this great, you could say played out in an ancient context of animal husbandry of where you were going through and by selective breeding, you get what you are looking for. And he was shown in a vision the goal that he was seeking to get with the livestock. And thus he was directed to then go forward and bring that into being. So this picture that you see for the lost sheep of Israel, you see this in a sense is a like sorting the sheep and the goats, even though you're not talking about sheep and goats in this particular passage, but that metaphor that you see used in the gospel about sorting between the sheep and the goats sort of comes into play with this particular passage of the stronger going with Yaakov and the weaker staying with Laban. And another passage that we are taking a look at with the Jacob's Ladder, one aspect of it is that you have what appears to be the weaker aspect of this, the weaker aspect. Yaakov is seemed to be the weaker. We saw in our last passage there of you've got the, you know, the man of the field, the hunter, the mighty hunter versus the man of the tents or the complete man, 
the man who is Tom, he's complete. He's not lacking anything, living in tents. Well, when you were to say the two of those, which do you think would actually win if they were going up against each other? Well, the one who you thought would have the weaker hand ended up winning. And it's a, it's a pattern you see repeated again and again and again. That which you think is least even comes into the passage we saw in John chapter 1. When he's talking about, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Which is actually a play on words because Nazareth, Nazareth means not just branch, but twig. So the Nazar is a branch of a tree. Nazareth is a small branch or a tree, or we would call a twig. So the twig of the house of Israel. And out of that came the mighty leader of all the house of Israel. Um, hallelujah indeed. So one of the things that we'll take a look at just here briefly is the aspect of this battling over the babies. Now, one of the things that we've seen in our previous passages that we've gone over here in our journey through the book of Genesis here again is that you have another attempt of trying to help God. <laughs> you have a, trying to help God out. And stacking upon that is you have massive amounts of sibling rivalry going on here, where you have the one that is loved and the one who is not loved. Now, remember our last Torah passage where it was talking about who was loved and who was actually mentioned as hated in Scripture. Who was that? Yes, Esau was hated. Yaakov was loved. So now we take, we've now selected, loved, hated. So now loved, Yaakov. Now who was loved and who was hated or loved less, despised? Leah and Rachel. And it's a very interesting thing here is that the loved versus the hated. Now the interesting thing that you know, many people have observed over many centuries is the aspect of the two, the two siblings. Now, remember when we were saying last week in the passage we're looking at as the continual problem with Esau? What was it? That he wasn't sticking with the family, right? He wasn't continuing on with the family in listening to the parents, to actually going along with that program. He was what? Where did he marry? He was jealous. Uh, jealous, married the wives of Canaan. Yes, he did not go and seek, you could say, people who were equally yoked came to be a phrase that we get later from the Torah and then through the apostolic writings, of, he was unequally yoked with his family. He was, and they were pulling him in a different direction. So Esau then goes off, becomes a people group in and of himself, and becomes a thorn in the side of the greater family for centuries afterward, after that, because he was not pulling in the same direction as the family legacy. So then, when you're thinking about the family that was going on, people have observed two brothers, two brothers that you have of Yitzhak, and go back to the family there in Haran. Now remember, Haran, go off. That was in the border of what was then the Hittite Empire, which had a large swath that went down through we, we call the Holy Land, and they butted heads with Mitzrayim, Egypt, there in the Holy Land, and they fought battles back and forth over centuries about that. So you saw that Yaakov was going to go back to the hometown, so to speak. You know, because remember, as we're going through the passage of Avraham, Avraham moves out of Ur, moves out of Mesopotamia, and moves out of Mesopotamia, 
and he's now moved up to you know when you see the maps of the fertile crescent that goes from uh, modern day kuwait the kind of the mouth there of the euphrates and tigris rivers sweeps up through modern day iraq goes up kind of touches the southern turkey and then comes down through lebanon uh, modern day lebanon and also modern day israel down in ends there in the Sinai, in the Negev desert area. So that's considered to be a fertile crescent because that area was key prime farmland because those areas tended to be watered and either watered from rivers or watered from the sky, you know, the gifts of God that come down from the sky. So Abraham moved out from the modern-day Kuwait area up through modern-day Iraq, because and then Haran is right there in basically you would say uh, modern-day southeastern, um, southeastern, northeastern uh, Syria, and that's kind of the general area of where Haran is. And so, thus, when Yaakov is fleeing back to Haran, that's where he's going to that area to back to where the family is. So when he gets there, he's wanting to what? Connect with family again. Laban has two daughters. So people have long observed that two daughters, two sons. You had of Yitzhak, you had an older son, you had a younger son. Laban had an older daughter and a younger daughter. So it would have made sense that they were a daughter or a son and a daughter for a son. Well, who got the birthright of Esau? Yes, Yaakov got it. So he goes, and now what does he end up with? Both. He gets both. He gets both the younger, the younger daughter, which was possibly going to be assigned to him anyway, and then the older daughter that was supposed to go to Esau. So his, the whole family then gets collected together. And thus, when you see the 12 tribes of Israel, who are they all sons of? Yaakov. There are no, no sons or no tribes of Israel that were not sons of Yaakov. So thus, you see, it all got collected then into Yaakov. So... The whole ball of wax, yeah. It, it just keeps getting funneled down. This funnel of where God's working keeps getting funneled down. It comes from the garden, the seed of the woman, to Noah, to Shem, to Avram, then down to Yitzhak, not Ishmael, and then it goes to Yaakov, not Esau, and now it's filtering down. But it is interesting that you have these two daughters and the very interesting thing is that <laughs> we get these pictures that we have here and talking about the battle of the babies between the two sisters and you have this talking about just like what you later have with the animal husbandry situation with laban and yaakov and how you get your animals to um procreate in the ways that you want them to here you have it with an ancient attempt to do so with the mandrakes in whose favor are you going to get. But you keep hearing in the midst of this that heart cry of Leah. I mean, she's naming all their kids that way. And they all come down to a similar refrain to, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll love me now. So, the sense is that you're getting through this, where is the bigger legacy of Israel actually coming from? Um, yes, I got a comment or a question there. <laughs> it's just, you know, what's the lesson? The guy, it's his forever, right? Yes. My kids, my land, my goats. Yes. Period. That yeah. was, you know, from day one. <laughs> yes. Didn't, didn't uh, Abraham tell him, by the way, when you're dealing with my brother or my brother all, whoever it was, the guy yes. is not, he's not fair. Yeah, make but sure he's you, got good stock, and you're going to get it because he got God's. That's favorite. right. But it ain't anything to do with him because he's all bad. Yeah, make sure you, you lock your doors, keep your hand on your wallet. 
Yes. When you're there in the household. Uh, yes, Deborah, uh, go ahead. Well, from a woman's point of view, if I were Leah, and you know, I mean, I would, my, my husband really didn't come, he didn't come by me. You know, he, he loves someone else. That would always bother me, whether I had the children or not. I mean, as women, we've done, we've been in relationships or marriage, or maybe a guy might've married us as women because out of a sense of duty. But when someone doesn't love you, it doesn't matter what you do. You can be the best cook, lover, whatever. You know, if you had that situation, you know, it would be terrible because, you know, if you had multiple wives and you loved one more, I can't imagine how she felt. I mean, to me, I feel maybe frustrated with her because it's like, oh, I'm going to make him love me. And then they sell him. And the two sisters are bickering and fighting, which must have cost a horrible household, you know, out there to begin with. And, you, you know, hell has no fury like a woman's scorn. I mean, I imagine Jacob, he just probably ran out all the time anyway. You know, these women are driving me nuts. You know, because I would just feel bad. Mm, yes. And, and that, that, is, that is one of those... One of those things where you'll see people that will uh, try to draw examples out of Scripture and go, well, hey, Yaakov had two wives, so, but read the story there. And that is a warning in and of itself, that when you see Yeshua finally come down in the, in the Gospels and talk about, you know, it's, for, it's best for you know, a man to go leave. Now, another lesson to men you're supposed to leave your family and be joined to your wife, not bring your family along and still be connected there to your family. Now, that's not cut off all ties, but one of the challenges always comes in is to not uh, bring your mother or your father into your marriage to still keep running, running the show. So, and that is one of those things where you have to have a man will leave his mother and father, the wife leaves her mother and father, and they two become together. So, uh, yes, Laurel and then Larry. This, this was a comment off of Deborah's comment, um, which was they they didn't quite get the lesson and as we were talking last week you know some of this stuff around the dinner table must have been pretty interesting um about well no this is not my wife this is my sister and then the kid <laughs> does it and all that so okay um jacob is is saying oh my gosh this is driving me nuts right well he didn't send the memo to his great great grandchild solomon who said it is better to live on the roof than in the house with a nagging wife. Do they ever get the memo? No. That's, that's why, you know, when you see the Apostle Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's like these things were written as a warning, a witness. Yes. They say, uh, don't do this. And that includes, that's why the good and the bad is included here in Scripture, is to you to take a look at these things and to... Have discernment to see what is good, what is bad, and what is a warning, and what is an admonition. Uh, yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, and then uh, Tammy. <clears throat> Excuse me. I figure that that's what made him such a good shepherd. He said, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> Back out in the field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, basically what Larry said was like the equivalent of going up on the roof. <laughs> um, but my comment is, is that in terms of like you were talking about earlier about, um, the, the juxtaposition of the love versus hated the Jacob and Esau versus the Rechab and Leah and that same verbiage of love versus hate or whatever. Another thing that I think in some ways that both Leah and Esau have in common is lying to themselves and lying to other people about the real source of the problem. Yeah. Esau tried to frame Jacob saying, you stole this and you stole that. It's like, no, you sold it fair and square. You just sold it. You sold it. We wouldn't think of it as square and square, but because we would find much more value in what he was selling in the first place than Esau apparently did. Right. That's why right? You know, scripture was talking about that he hated his birthright or he yeah. didn't consider that something worth holding on yeah. to. So us looking at that from on the outside, we would say, well, yeah, in some ways Esau is right in the sense of stealing it, in the sense that he didn't sell it 
Jacob wasn't offering what it was really worth. But the problem is, is that Esau, by accepting that, was showing that that's what it was really worth to him, even though those of us on the outside looking at that think he was really crazy. But um, and same thing with Leah in a different way is that Leah later on accuses Rachel, You're, you stole my husband. Right. It's like, no, Laban and Leah stole Rachel's husband in a sense. Right. Rachel is the one that was the victim of theft, not Leah. Just like Esau was not the victim of a theft either. He just didn't realize the value of what he was giving up. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, yes, Eski, uh, go ahead, please. It, to go along with that, with yeah, it was like uh, Esau sold his birthright, and that showed how much it meant to him, which was very little, and it showed how Yaakov, you know, knew what it was worth. And um, so, in a sense, he, that was fair and square there. But then the the other one that came a little later when they tricked when uh, Yaakov's mom said to go mm. and put on uh, fur for Abraham to feel him and to totally trick him and then he said i yes i am i am esau he's like you, you don't sound like him because i think he was i think he was pretty much going blind at that point and then he felt him and he felt they put the fur on his arm so that he would match resemble his brother esau so that in a sense was way more and and Yaakov didn't want to do it you know his mom said no that you know you need to do this and then after Abraham found out, he was like, well, I already gave him the, the birthright. I think that was the, the inheritance part of mm. it. And, uh, but ultimately, uh, Esau released that, which comes with the firstborn. The birthright ultimately comes with the firstborn thing. So here you kind of release that. And ultimately, you see that God favored Jacob ultimately because he then became Israel and Mm. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, God rewards those who really want things too, really want it. And Esau, I don't think it, uh, showed how much it meant to him. He sold it for food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's very interesting because we'll see the, <laughs> where the passage stops today ends right just before where you see where he really gets the change of name from Yaakov to Israel, because you get that wrestling with the angel. Now, it's very interesting that you see the picture of it get hinted at just before this, because you see um, an appearance of the angel of the Lord in a very, very strange place in the midst of this particular passage. But you also, just before we go there any further, you brought up a very interesting point of what we saw in the last particular passage of Yitzhak being fooled by feeling what he thought was his son Esau, but he had just the applique of the skins and made him feel like the uh, son Esau, but it was really Yaakov. Now, what did we see about feeling around in this particular passage here? Remember Laban going feeling around inside? The, it's a very strange way that's worded in there. Feeling around inside the tent. You know, it's like, searching around but without actually seeing you're just going by touch and when you're looking for something how effective is that not terribly effective if you've lost something and you're looking for it and you're just feeling around various parts of the couch this and that are is it easily going to be found now lose something underneath your couch and then go around feeling for it and how effective is that usually you're a blind squirrel, yes. What, what often works, though, is you get down with a flashlight and you look under, oh, there it is. Because you're like feeling, 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 feeling around. You just can't find it. But when you look and you've got light shining in there, suddenly now you see it. Um, yeah, before we get over there, uh, Pat, you've been hanging there with your hand up. So we'll get, get to you and then over to uh, Larry. Well, 
to me, one of the things that has always stood out to me was the very importance of the words you speak mm. in that when Rachel had stolen her father's gods and said on them, when Jacob said to Laban, whoever you find them with, let them die. Well, later she died. I don't know whether in childbirth or something, yes. but she did not live long. And it just, it's most, to me, it's been a very strong reminder of the importance of the words you speak and to know what you're talking about when you speak. Yeah, indeed. And you, you bring up a very interesting point of uh, that particular thing of being careful when you make an oath. And you see that Yeshua brings that up. And he says, uh, it's better not to swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because it's a reminder that and something that when you see in some of the um, recorded rabbinical literature the time period about oaths i mean you've got a, a whole section of the rabbinical writings on oath taking and it goes into detail about what it means to actually take an oath what it means can you get out of it taking an oath and goes on into very exacting detail of it and so when you read that you should just get the conclusion well it's just better not to take an oath at all exactly Leave your oaths for something that is very extremely important. Don't just make oaths willy-nilly and um, be careful on the deals that you get into. In fact, there's a deal at the end of this passage that is where you say you have to be careful about who it is that you're making deals with. Because here you've got someone, you're making a covenant with someone who's extremely reputable and known to fulfill all of his promises and the things that he promises. That, isn't that what we've seen in the track record of Laban? No, not at all. In fact, that it gets repeated, oh, and you've changed my wages 10 times. And that then becomes a hallmark of the descendants of Israel and the, quote, deals, you could say, of a sort that they make with the Lord during the Exodus. And we'll read about that later. That you've complained these 10 times. So it's very interesting how these things boomerang over the generations. If you don't learn the lessons of the previous generations, these will be things that will then drag on into later generations and become huge issues because those 10 you know laments complaint sessions rant sessions became what a key part of why they ended up spinning donuts for 40 years around the mountain instead of going into the land until a whole generation died off because partly because of that because of not learning to be grateful, to see the blessings of God as they are poured out and then follow forward with them where they are leading. Uh, yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, please. Well, th this is a little bit different, but the, uh, there is a tradition and something that I've thought of myself that Isaac, how could he get fooled that way? And so there's a tradition that he actually knew that he was being lied to but and, he and knew you also can, that the promise of how everything's worth to go so he just went along with it and and you could tell that he knew he knew you can see the wording in there that he knew something was going on but uh it's one of those things do you go forward with what you want to do or what you think you should do and that's again a lesson in this particular account between the two sisters, between all of the progeny that then comes out of it. And it's just interesting when you see it's here, we're, we're coming up onto the time of Hanukkah. And that's one of the, the key things to remember is that you know, throughout scripture, there's like you know, eight, at least eight key women that are mentioned as having very miraculous times of birth. And, and you see, we've seen so far with Sarah being infertile until she was made happy with laughter. She was caused to have laughter with Yitzhak. And Rivka, you could see that she was miraculously led to give birth at the particular time periods. And Rachel, 
Rachel here were were studying about her and how she was loved. She was the loved one, but she was one of the last to actually have any children by Yaakov. And then you see as it moves on further, Samson or Shimon's um, mother, and also uh, with uh, Hannah, with the mother of um, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, and also the Shunami woman, and also with Elisheva or Elizabeth, and also with Miriam or Mary, uh, Yeshua's human mother. So thus, when we, we've talked about this in previous times on the, the time of Hanukkah, but it's one of the interesting things to remember of what we are dedicated to and what we are a part of as a legacy. And are we following through with that leading or are we trying to take things into a different direction? So just a little bit of a recap on just the names of the particular children by their mothers. So the children of Leah, you got Reuben, you got Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, and Dina, the daughter. And then by Zilpah, Leah's servant, God and Asher, and the sons of Bilchah or Rachel's servant, because she was trying to say, well, I'm going to have kids by somebody. So got Bilchah into the mix, and through Bilchah comes Don and Naphtali, and then finally through Rachel, given miraculous birth of Yosef, and later we'll see in the next passage that we go into of Benjamin being born. And as we mentioned, that is also when Rachel died, was in the midst of giving birth to Benjamin. So just one of the things that you see in that we mentioned it just previously about the children of Leah and the lament that is coming through and when she's describing what she's going through and then that comes through in the names of the kids. So Rubain, which comes from Ra'a or to see and a son. So I see a son. I finally saw a child and maybe he will love me now. And Shimon, which is, comes from Shema, you know, Shema Israel, hero Israel. So that's, that's why his name is taken to mean hearing. And Levi joined, and that son is it re recalled in the passage where it says, now finally I will become joined. I will now have Levi with my husband. If he finally joined him, I won't be this kind of castaway here. I will be finally joined with him. And then Yehuda, phrase or extolation based on Yada. And it's interesting with Yada, and that's something that is an interesting perspective on Yada versus Halal and those, partic those two particular verbs. This from the theological word book of the Old Testament, that the primary meaning of the root verb Yada is to acknowledge or to confess sin, God's characters and works and man's character. So the difference between this verb and its synonym halal is that the latter term tends to stress the acclaim of, boasting of, glorying in an object, while yadak emphasizes recognition and declaration of a fact, whether good or bad. So the LXX or the Septuagint normally renders yadak with um, ex exo or Echo um, molego, and uh, echo molego is a word that means uh, confession. So a very interesting aspect of confession that we get with this is that we see in this particular name of Yehuda an interesting aspect of confession. So confession versus boasting of or a claim of so halal used for hallelujah so when you say hallelujah you are boasting proclaiming of the name of god 
Now with Yahoo, or to have that part of proclaiming or praising, it is also confessing too. So it's very interesting that when we get into a passage that's coming up here soon uh, in the Torah passage Vayeshev in Genesis 38, we see that Yehuda really lives up to his name in that aspect because he confessed of he confessed the events that led to the near execution of his daughter-in-law Tamar. And the famous quote there in Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I, insomuch as I did not give her my son Shelah. Now, it's very interesting when you go through the thread of that, and we'll see more when we get to that particular passage, but something that bears into the thread that we see going through from Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman, all the way through to this particular passage and down through to the Messianic era is that you see that the seed or the Zarah, that seed was literally wasted, that legacy coming the seed of the woman, of Chava, of Eve. The seed of the woman is whom? The Messiah. That seed was wasted because look at how many kids Yehuda had that it was supposed to go through. So, Er died. Onan didn't, didn't step up. And then Shelah kept out of the picture. Now, it's interesting that Shelah was really supposed to be promised to Tamar to keep the line going, but who did it actually go through? <laughs> yeah, it actually went through Yehuda, through his daughter-in-law, who said, hey, look, you got to keep this line going. And through then Tamar and through their child's Peretz would then come David, David. And then through David would come the Messiah. And that you can see that thread going all the way from the Garden of Eden. So it's gone from Eve, and then it goes all the way down through Noah to Shem, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, to Yaakov, and then down to Yehuda then down to Peretz, and then down to David, and then down to Messiah. So you see this thread that keeps moving through, and that particular thread, the seed of the woman, the promised one, it would be a thread that would be unbroken, even <laughs> for as much as people either tried to help the situation or whatever they tried to do, that thread would continue on, and that promise of the ladder between heaven and earth would be preserved so one of the pictures that we see of this particular passage and this is a uh, one rendering of it i know this is going to be an eye chart of this but if you want to see the and peruse this further we've got it posted on our website at halal.info slash vayetze dash 2020 so V-A-Y-E-T-Z-E dash 2020. And you'll see a, a, this same structure in greater detail. This is the particular passage of Vayetzi. And it is in the structure of what is known as a chiasm, um, at which chiasm gets its word from the, the Greek letter chi, which is, we see, it looks like an X. And it gets that idea because just like with an X, you've got a wide part at the top and a narrow part where the two crossbars come together. And that is, as you say, the point. The point is where, like in the capital X, you have the two bars come together in the middle, and at that middle point is the point of the passage. That is a chiastic structure, or as it's referred to in Hebrew as called the atbash was just, it's simply a Hebrew acronym for Aleph Tov, beginning and end, and then Bet Shin, so second, and then the second to the last letter. So that's where it's referred to in Hebrew as the Atbash structure. It just, it's the same thing, but you'll see it over and over and over throughout Scripture. And that is basically, is conveying to you, the reader, hey, there is a point here 
don't miss what this point is. And in this particular uh, structure, there's different ways that you can recognize these chiastic structures. But in this particular passage, the elements that are not repeated are there in the middle where you have uh, Genesis 29, verses 22 through 30, and then chapter 30, verses 22 through 24, where you've got Rachel's shame is being bypassed, and God gathers Rachel's reproach. So what is the reproach of Rachel? Barrenness. That is the reproach of Rachel. And what is the result? You could say the result that comes out of this uh, particular barrenness of Rachel. The increase. And his name? Yosef. So that reproach is brought to an end by Yosef. So that is ended there. And Yosef being a key figure, and we'll see as we go through the story yet again of Yosef, but Yosef is a key figure that shows us of the Mashiach, and especially a very important aspect of the Mashiach, and that is what is known as the suffering servant. Because when you get to the passages that you see in the prophet Isaiah of the suffering servant, a key one that we remember is Isaiah 53, but there's others in Isaiah that talk about the suffering servant. Many, many sages, commentators over centuries have seen there is a close correlation there between Isaiah 53 and the story of Yosef there. Because that picture of the servant of the Lord who is suffering seems like forgotten, thrown away by the family, thrown away. You could say God is not with him. But what do people around notice? The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. And thus they recognize and they put their trust their faith in in yosef and they say we put our faith in yosef because we recognize that the lord is with you so that then is the pattern of the suffering servant so when you read isaiah 53 through the lens of what you've already seen earlier with the story of yosef then you are prepared for when the messiah shows up that you recognize him if you're looking for someone coming like Yosef. Yeah. Um, yes, we have a, a comment or a, a question here. And so the sages, there were many sages in Jewish tradition that were looking for the prophet, Indeed. excuse me, the Messiah coming from um, Joseph's line. Yeah, or you could say a um, Messiah ben Yosef, or one that is like that. Son, not literally from the line of Yosef, but like an unto Yosef is how they're described. So they were looking for, there was a certain school uh, or teaching, rabbinic teaching, sage teaching, that was looking for like ben Yeah. Yeah, I have a book that's this thick of uh, writings just on that particular thing. So one of the things you'll see some anti-missionaries today will say, you know, Christians have just butchered Isaiah 53 and coming up with any sort of concoction that that has anything to do with Yeshua or the Messiah or anything like that. No, I've got a book that's this thick of writings that stretch all the way from the first century through the medieval period, which where people say, hey, this is Isaiah 53, Genesis 49. These are all reflecting upon the Mashiach. This is not some fast and loose work that the apostles and their disciples came up with. No, this is actually what comes out of the word. Um, let's see. Uh, I think Alex and then uh, Larry. Um Laban recognized uh, Jacob's God, or Isaac, you know, the God. So they, they people from the outside rec recognize them. They don't own them. They go, 
we know you're God, man. Yeah, recognize. I still got all my little ones in my back but, pocket. But, but the question was, is that here. did he recognize the Yirah Yitzhak, the fear of Isaac? No. He wasn't afraid of that at all. Had he been, he would not have done any of the things that he, that he did. But he did not have that fear. So, yeah, he recognized him, but... Uh, it was it was uh, not the recognition that one would take uh, as a you could say a life saving precaution. Yes, uh, yes, Larry, go ahead, please. Well, I, I I don't know if this is what Alex said because I couldn't quite hear him, but the the um, the Jews couldn't recognize Messiah because they were the ones who were casting him out of their of the family. They were the family that was casting him out. Yeah, so it's, it's that those that you would say did not recognize what was said. There are many that did, but many that didn't. So that was, you know, we're going through the Romans right now, and that was the lament of the Apostle Paul in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. It's like, um, why so many of his brothers and sisters there in Israel did not recognize it? And that would... That was foretold. Isaiah 53 says that, that strongly, that he came into his own and his own did not recognize him. And that's built upon also in John chapter 1, where it says the similar thing that you see in Isaiah 53. He came to his own and they did not recognize him. There were many, but, and uh, they did not recognize it. So it is there for the recognition, but you see that, it is revealed through the prophets and see through the apostle that there will be a time coming when the eyes will be opened. And so we just pray for that time to be soon, that the eyes of Israel would be opened and that they all would behold their Yeshua, their Messiah. Yes, and our deliverance so that the, we all Israel would be saved. Amen. That, that is definitely a a blessed hope that we have in that regard. So one of the things that we'll see here, uh, I don't know if there are any other comments here before we move on. Oh, yes, uh, go ahead, Rose. This is just out of my own head, and it's probably crazy, but I, all, the, all, this, all these words, I see it as, as God, creator, father, lover of us all, and then I see it as, as the children, oh, yeah, we, we love you, God, but we got stuff we got to do over here. And so, you know, God lets them go do their stuff over there, and then he has to haul them back. Uh, uh, you can almost turn to every page, and, and you're going to find something like that. So it's just a loving father creating his, all these children. And, and in the end, He's still going to love us all. He's still going. He overcame death. Death and grave has no hold over his children. And he's a loving father, and he's going to resurrect them. And they're going to see. They're they're going to they're going to understand, and, and they're going to know. Oh, they're going to. It's just if you can just imagine what they're going to see when they see him. You know, I mean, even, uh, you know, it talks about in Second in Peter that God went down, Christ went down into the grave. He went down into, and, and a lot of them received him. And he took them up, you know, he took them up to paradise, as I understand it. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, a lot of, uh, when they see God, I mean, it's just going to be, uh, it's just going to be awesome. It, it will be awesome in two reactions. It, it will be for those that are waiting for the redemption and those that will say, the redemption is here and we don't want any part of it. And then they, they march upon the one who is, is bringing the deliverance. And that's one of those reactions that is baffling. But... It's uh, something that we saw earlier with our passage that we were reading earlier from Ezekiel, that it's not something 
that the Lord wants. The Lord wants all to turn around. But sadly, we know from life, and we see it talked about in the global picture from Scripture, that there are those that just do not want to turn around. So that is... Uh, sadly, one of those reactions that comes to the, the mercy of the Lord. Yes, we see through a glass darkly indeed. Not, none of us all have, have the truth. That's right. That's right. So thus, you don't uh, judge other people. You let the Lord judge other people. That's right. Yes, the Lord has it all in control. So... One of the pictures that we have of the Genesis 28 verses 10 through 22 is the passage there on the, what's known as the Jacob's Ladder. Now, this is one of the most important aspects about this because this is, blows up that whole narrative that you hear of God as the absentee landlord. He just sets things in motion sets things in motion and just lets it go as it is and uh, does not care one whit about what is going on. And that is one of the pictures that we have of the Jacob's Ladder is that that view is just completely bogus. That view of the creator from earth, that's bogus. Because no, there is not a absentee landlord. There is one that wants to build a connection between heaven and earth, the latter. And you see that, and we've talked about this when we, went, we go through each year on the two trees, the tree of the life and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. One directs us upward, the tree of life directs us upward. Lift your eyes up. Yes, this world is full of death and destruction, but lift your eyes up above that because you know, it came to be known as the phrase that's a bit passe now about navel gazing, where you're always looking at your midsection about what is going on within you, but losing perspective on what is happening above you and outside of yourself. Well, that is what the tree of life directs us toward, that there is the picture of life, the picture of the creator that wants to connect with mankind to connect with humanity to put things back into the way that we're created and has mercy on those that have turned it into the muck and the mire that it is right now now the tree of knowledge of good and bad directs us the other direction the things that we want to do focused on the just the here and now and the the just nothing but get her done whatever works we don't care about what the consequences are. We just go through it and go through it just to get through it or to get more, to step on other people in the path, etc. So in the midst of that, you got the, also the two pictures of how you build this connection. Now, we saw earlier in the book of Genesis about the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Confusion. That which is heaven is there for earth to basically invade. You have earth creates the tower to invade or to reach up to heaven, to reach into heaven. But the latter is about what? You see the sending and descending on the ladder. And then we get the picture that's later on, so about for those that are puzzling over what this means about the ladder and the messengers of God ascending and descending upon it, you see in the passage we read from John chapter 1, that is about ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That that's one, that connection between heaven and earth would be where heaven would make the connections with earth. And that is where you get the interesting pictures that <laughs> of, as it uh, builds over time, of the angel of the Lord. And you see that in the particular passage that as it's rendered, uh, some translations will render it 
that the Lord was uh, there at the top of the ladder. But literally speaking, it says the Lord was next to the ladder and talking to Yaakov in the midst of this. And so then you see later on where you have the angel of the Lord is then talking with Yaakov in this and bringing the message to Yaakov over something you would say not seemingly inconsequential over animal husbandry tips of how heaven was going to bless this flock. And you're thinking, well, what was so consequential that the angel of the Lord had to come and deliver this directly to Yaakov about just tips on how to win with a little squabble against Laban? But no, this was about to show those who would seek to subter <laughs> seek subterfuge to subvert what heaven was doing would come up against the power of heaven. And that's something that we're going to see play out with the plagues later on when we get into the book of Exodus. That that was something that one paro got, the paro that knew Yosef, and one paro didn't get, the one that didn't know Yosef, and by extension did not know the God of Yosef. Uh, yes, uh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Um, another, I don't know if it was um, at the time that they knew it was God. It was um, um, was a jolly green giant. You know, the giants, they had the ladder and they would climb up. Remember the giants came up and down? The Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack there and the Beanstalk, huh? I mean, I, you know, whoever wrote that book, I think probably some Hebrew or Jewish person that was making it as a metaphor, you know, in that time had that ladder you know, and they would go up and down and the giants would come and down. I mean, we don't know the size of the angels. They could have been giants coming up and down. So, I mean, when I remember studying years back with Richard when we were at the Grange, um, I don't know, that was, I think we, we had talked about the, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk at one point about, you know, a lot of these fairy tales and a lot of these things. Some of the stuff was like the Titans, these things you know, before the flood, they were there. I mean, they weren't like just made up fictional mm. stories, the kinds well, well, of the, things the, that were made. The, yeah, the Titans one is far off by a mile. Yes. Yeah, the legends, certain, certain ones that have uh, some, yeah, have some uh, rel relevance in the world, yes. Interesting. Mm. It cannot be reproduced by anyone. Mm. That that strand that they you know they showed it once as a DNA strand mm. Mm -hmm. that ladder because it had to do with the human DNA. Mm. I, I don't remember exactly, but the ladder was another metaphor for the DNA strand because when you look at it, the way it's curled and it goes up, it, you know, it's a, worth a deeper study. But it had mm. to do with the DNA strand about you know they're trying to create man for, in a test tube. But only God has the ability to create life. Mm, okay. So one of the things that we saw there in the passage there, uh, yes, Anne, go ahead, please. I just, I just thought of one, one world order, you know, with, with one language, you know, how now they talk about one world order, you know, and how we're all going to come together in this big one world. Mm, yes, well, the building the tower is uh, something that uh, that in influence keeps going on and on, and uh, is is just it's just amazing how you have some people don't get that some messages are meant as a warning. You know, for for example, you'll see people that will see some um, dystopian novel or dystopian movie, and then you'll start hearing them parrot stuff actually from those works and you're thinking did you not get that that was a warning and the other aspect is like the tower of babel and you're thinking that is a warning and that now you see like uh international organizations actually will model that as being their headquarters they'll design their buildings like that they use the imagery from it and you're like wait a minute did you not understand that that was a warning and it's a very interesting picture that 
that is one of the issues with the two trees again is that some people just will not notice which tree is actually the one that you want to go to as we discussed this before when we were going through genesis that in gnosticism at least in the writings that you have to come through in the middle ages it's not really known what the early gnostics that you see talked about in the gospels or the apostolic writings really believed you get some ideas but in the some of the later writings that you have to come through the middle ages you get this picture and their story of creation is basically you, you take genesis and then you just flip all the roles on their head. And for example, with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, the, it's called the demiurge, which is their, their view of who the creator is. That was actually who we would call the serpent. And the one that is trying to keep things from you, to keep the good from you, is the creator. And the one who's trying to give you things to expand you, to make you better, is the serpent. And those bring the things around. And thus you can see as that the kingdom of the adversary is alive and well, trying to play the hoodwinks, turn things on their heads. So just whether it's Laban just completely lying about the situations and the deals that they've had, changing them the terms 10 times, or whether it goes through with these organizations that are trying to turn the words of God completely on their head and say that, just like what the serpent said to the woman, yeah, did God really say this? Or even if he said this, do you even believe it? So thus, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the adversary, when it talks about... Yeshua said, the father of lies. That's no understatement whatsoever. And twist the things completely upside down. He's going down. He's going down. Yes, uh, Alex, I have a comment or a question. Hosea, you know. Hosea? Um, yeah, the, uh, that little nugget that said, you guys are the ones who want to judge us and kings. Yes. So our relationship with God. And yeah, the cathedrals come and go and the stells and God doesn't like him. He, he mentioned that <laughs> when, hey, we're going to build a monument. No, don't, don't do it. Mm. <laughs> and that Tower of Babel looks like they needed a really big base on that. Yes. And a ladder is just a simple <laughs> ladder. Yeah. It's almost as if it's a God thing. Yes. Versus a man thing. So one of the passages we'll leave here with today is a passage from John chapter 14, verse 6. And Yeshua said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So when you're talking about the ladder between heaven and earth, that is one of those messages. So when he says, you know, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you, that ladder, you can depend upon that connection between heaven and earth and he keeps reinforcing that again and again and again no no absentee landlord creator here nope not one 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 bit whatsoever yes all right so that's where we'll close things out here today any last thoughts all right we'll close things out so thank you oh uh yes larry uh, go, go ahead please so are, are you saying that the ladder that Jacob saw was a type of Messiah? That is a picture. That is basically saying that that is what the ladder between heaven and earth. And see, that's, that's one of the, you could say, one of the benefits that, that we have of having the end of the story. Because, you know, the, our brothers and sisters there in the tribe of Yehuda in greater, um, they still have the veil over their eyes when they read the scriptures so they don't see what the end of the story is so thus then they're left to say without that picture what else could that ladder be about and you'll see in the various sages will come up with various ideas on what the ladder is really talking about but since we've got the fuller end of the story 
Not yet all, but we've got the fuller end of the story, at least of where that is going and what those things are about. Thus, we can make those connections to see when Yeshua says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, that we know what that picture is really referring to. So that picture that you see, okay, it's a ladder between heaven and earth. Then you see as it pulls out in the, as we go on into the life of Yosef, oh, this is one who's going to come in and be seemingly forgotten, thrown away, but yet God rise him up, raise him up, and put him into a huge power of position to then be the savior of Israel out of, you would say, certain death of the famine. So, and then bring up the house of Israel later. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.